My name is Jamie. I have the privilege of being a pastor here at Midtown Church. And if you're with us for the first time this morning or haven't been with us in a while, we are slowly making our way through Peter's first letter, a series we've entitled Standing in Grace, a title we get from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, where Peter says this is, and speaking of the letter as a whole, that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And that standing being this ongoing posture of unwavering confidence in the grace of God that's been manifested to us in Jesus, that's, that's kind of doing this renovating work in our hearts that make us look more like Him. But not only is it manifested to us, it's then manifested through us as it dictates and relates and orients how we kind of have our being and our movements in our surrounding culture. So Peter says throughout this book that, that what I'm displaying to you is God's true grace. Stand in it. Now one of the main themes of this letter that we've touched on throughout is there's this thread that sows its way through 1 Peter that talks about us being aliens, strangers, foreigners, and actually where we live now. And so what Peter's bringing into view is we are citizens of another kingdom. We're urbanites of a greater city that is to come, and yet while we're still here in our home away from home, as it were, that there are certain ways that should frame our engagement, our interaction, both inside and outside of the church. And so Peter weaves that throughout the book, and part of living here and not fully being present in the kingdom that is to come, not, not, not yet being in the greater city that it says Abraham Saw when he set out from his homeland. Part of being here is suffering. And yet suffering in the scripture is illuminated in several different ways. This morning takes one of those ways and brings it into complete specific focus. And so when we say suffering this morning, we mean something incredibly specific. Now many of you here have suffered in life. Disease, sickness, death of loved ones, loss of a job, loss of a spouse, relationships fracturing. All of these are angles and opportunities and ways that suffering has come into our life that make things difficult, make things hard, challenging, tragic. None of those ways are in view this morning, though, and it's important for you to hear that. Peter's angle, his description on suffering this morning is specifically for the reason of simply being a Christian. So it is suffering that comes simply because you are identified with your Lord. Nothing else. Nothing that you've done wrong. It's not the suffering as a consequence of sin, though that's true suffering as well. It's not the tragic sufferings of, of death by disease, of loved ones, people we hold dear. It is whatever following Jesus has cost you simply for following Jesus. And it's important for us to frame that. That's the context of the passage at hand. It's also going to be important to remember in what is a difficult passage to not only understand but to teach in this difficult passage that we must frame it in light of what we talked about last week when Jake was teaching. Peter had this odd phrase of the end of all things is near that, that there's, this, there's this reality 
that human history is progressing towards what we would say from a biblical standpoint, the last great moment of human history, which will be the return of Jesus, the literal physical return of Christ. Right? That's the next great event on the calendar uh, of humanity. And so as we move from the post-resurrection and ascension of Jesus, which just means after his appearing to the disciples and going back into heaven to be with the Father until he'll come again, from that moment until he returns, we're like in this parentheses, and human history is progressing towards that return. The fancy way to talk about that idea in theological camps is this funny word called eschatology, the study of the end things. Peter fully believes the end of all things is near. We're in that progression. And each day we draw closer to the return of Christ. And that's important because Peter is going to say there are certain proofs that that's actually true. One of those proofs is that what Jesus told us, if you follow me, the world hated me, they'll also hate you. That Peter's saying when these things are coming true, it's more and more of a vindication that we're actually in this progression of human history, this final consuming act of the judgment of God. What's nuanced about that in Peter's teaching is going to be what we find towards the end of our passage this morning is Peter actually says the judgment of God begins with the household of God. Now most of us, if we're followers of Jesus, we're familiar with the language or, or, or the idea that once coming to Christ, there is no more condemnation for us, Romans 8.1. We actually don't have to fear God's wrath or fear punishment from God because solely by the work of Jesus and responding to that in faith and repentance, we're freed from that fear. We don't have to anticipate God pouring his wrath out on us because the wrath of God was absorbed by Jesus on the cross. So what does Peter mean when God's judgment is still going to begin with, very clearly, us? We're going to bring that in to view this morning. These are some uh, difficult texts to understand and to teach. So we need the grace of God to be very kind to us this morning. Another difficulty for the passage this morning is, if I'm candid with you, most of what we talk about in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, most of it I've actually never tasted through personal experience. In fact, I, I, would, I would wager, it's not going to be true of all of us here, but if I were to wager, most of us here, I would say, in our Western American context, haven't tasted 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 um, in many deep ways. And oftentimes when we hear a text that doesn't seem immediately applicable, it's hard for us to really sink into it, to draw much from it, to take it and approximate it in real time in our real walks with God. And so from the beginning, let's put it on our radar that there are many places in the world right now where 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 we would not even have to teach it. We could read it and pray because the depth and weight of this passage would come home to those believers in such deep, rich experience. Now, we're not afforded that opportunity this morning for the most of us. But what I will say is I do think the landscape of our culture and country is changing. I grew up in the deep South, to be candid, following Jesus never cost me much of anything except sins I wanted to pursue. 
Furthermore, not only did it not cost me much, I had actually enhanced my standing to be known as a Christian guy in the part of the country I grew up in. And so it was the opposite of what Peter's going to talk about in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. But the landscape is changing. Some of you UT students know this. The campuses of American universities are growing in their hostility towards Christ followers. We know this in being in Austin, which is a wonderful city, but it's a nuanced city in the state of Texas. It's not one that you're necessarily going to grow in prominence or status or comfort or social circles simply because you name the name of Jesus. And that change is going to start to permeate the landscape of America as a whole. And so whether you've really tasted it or not, the reality is it is coming And so at best this morning, maybe we can learn how to root ourselves and how to prepare ourselves to stand firm when 12 through 19 does come home in true experiential ways. So that said, you can put up on your phone, you can open up your Bible, look up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19, these are the very words of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, and here comes a quote from Proverbs, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter 4, 12-19, those are the very words of God. Pray with me. God, we do ask your uh, kindness to us, confessing freely to you that when we hold a copy of the Scriptures in our hands, we we, we hold in our hands the living, active words of yourself. And God, as they come from you and you being our supreme authority, we... We, we stand underneath the authority of your word. We don't come to it to try to fit it to what we would want it to say. We come to it to try to reconcile our lives with what it actually says. And so as we teach it, as we listen, as we all seek to learn this morning what you would have us know from your word, we need your kindness, we need your spirit, we need ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand difficult things that you tell us. In the wonderful, wonderful name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, some of the language Peter uses in chapter 4, specifically in verse 12, talking about trial or fire, it's not foreign to us. In fact, if you would look back, if you want to flip to chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 6 through 7 to bring us back to, he actually brought this idea up at the beginning of the letter. Here's what he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Here's the reason, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise 
and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's, there's a few things Peter wants us to know this morning about suffering for being a Christian. And the first is this. It should not surprise us. It shouldn't be a moment of shock. It shouldn't take us off guard. He tells us, do not be surprised when suffering comes into your life simply because you name the name of Christ. And we would find this true if we read through other, other letters in the New Testament. And Paul makes it very clear that suffering should be or is going to be the normative experience of the Christ follower. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. I'll just read a few verses. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Watch this now. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus himself would say, Luke chapter 9, that if you're going to follow me, you must take up your cross. The tangible, a very real-time example of suffering, that it will cost you unpleasantness in life simply for following Jesus. And furthermore, if our lives are going to be conformed to the pattern of our Lord, it stands to reason that if Christ was not spared from suffering, well, neither will his people. In fact, there's a Christ-likeness that begins to become true of us when we suffer and we're joined in what the Bible says in fellowshipping, deep, intimate relationship with the Son of God himself when we suffer for the same reasons that he did, simply for aligning ourselves with God. So Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be taken off guard by this. And when we are surprised by it, there's usually something true going on in us, and that is we don't really grasp, and I'm incredibly guilty of this, we don't really grasp how other people view the things that the Bible actually has to say. We're Christians. We're nice people. We believe in doing good things and loving things and trying to be gracious and kind. Surely if we're just nice and kind and pleasant people, no one would reject someone for being nice and kind and pleasant. And I would caution us, that kind of thinking will ultimately lead to some shock. Because no matter how nice, no matter how kind, no matter how pleasant, no matter how many works of good we engage in, there is always going to be a contingency that simply because we're aligned with Jesus, there will be opposition. There'll be dislike. There won't be favor. There won't be charity. There won't be kindness. The gospel message in and of itself is offensive. Which is why Peter goes to great lengths earlier in chapter 3 to tell us, don't do anything to be intentionally offensive. The message is offensive in and of itself. Why? Well, it brings up things like sin. It calls into account that there are things that are objectively right or wrong. And it's not just about being right or wrong. In fact, it's not just objectively right or wrong. It actually breaks a law given by a transcendent being that says through the breaking of that law, we can't have fellowship with them. It's not going to be a well-received message. It says that we have broken fellowship with God because of what we do, which means we have to take ownership. 
We have to be willing to admit, I transgressed, I sinned, I was wrong, there's darkness in me, I've done evil. And then we have to admit that we're actually not good enough to fix all of that. So I'm not smart enough to think my way to God. I'm not good enough to do a bunch of good things to make up for all the bad things. I'm not powerful enough to save myself. All of these things that culture would hold dear, power, self-justification, vindication by what we do, uh, being intellectual, all of these things that are cultural monuments that we say, well, none of those are good enough. The only thing that's good enough is to throw myself at the altar of Jesus and trust Him to do everything that I couldn't. Okay, there are these inherent uh, uh, offenses in the message and gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked when suffering comes your way simply by following Jesus. And I get that. Like that, one, that one doesn't surprise me too much. Right? I get paid to be a Christian, to study the Bible. I've been to seminary. I've read and studied the New Testament. I know those passages are in there. Now here's what is surprising. And here's what does kind of get in and mess with my, I would just call, normative operating Daily theology, daily way I think about God. As verse 12 goes on to say, God actually, in either, hear me now, causing it or allowing it, God has an active hand in the suffering coming into my life, the suffering just because I follow Jesus. Now, why would he do that? Isn't God's prerogative to make my human experience as comfortable and happy as possible. In fact, is the purpose of human living not the elimination of pain, the elimination of suffering? That, that, that the best way to go about life is the pain-free life. So let's try and do everything we can to marginalize anything that would ever cause us suffering. And yet Peter says, hey, God is going to allow this operating system where the world opposes you for following Jesus to continue, and it's going to continue for two primary reasons. Okay, and the reasons we find in this passage are this. One is that he's going to say there's a purifying uh, a trial. That's what fire usually is an imagery of a purifying agent. So when he says the fiery ordeal... It's purifying. It goes back to 1, 6 through 7, the purification of gold. So it's purifying in two senses. One, it purifies the church corporate, and it purifies us individually. How does it purify the church corporate? Well, Jesus taught on this one place, and we won't read it this morning. I intended on reading it. Um, we won't have time if I do. He teaches in, in, in a parable. He talks about the wheat and the weeds. Here's what Jesus says is true. In the church in the gathered assembly of God, that you'll have people that truly are Christ followers and people who are not. Oftentimes, we can't tell the difference. And so God, in His purifying work of establishing who is really His and who isn't, in the parable of the weeds, it says there's a time that comes when there's fire, there's a burning. Remember, it's a purifying agent. And in that time, the wheat is separated from the weeds. Matthew 25, he does the same thing with the idea of sheep and goats. That there's a time that's coming when the sheep and the goats will be separated. The true followers of Jesus will be found out 
from the false followers, and what an act of God's grace. For if you think you know him but don't, you still need to know him, and he wants you to know that. And if you do know him, what a confirmation of our faith that he gives us when suffering comes into our life and we persevere. When that happens, he says, verse 14 of our passage is true. That when we suffer simply because of the name of Jesus and we keep going, Peter says, what a gift from God because it's tangible, real-time evidence that God's Spirit rests on you. That's the only way it's possible. What is the only reason it makes sense to keep doing the very thing that's causing suffering in your life? And that's as if you're empowered by the Spirit of God. And so it comes as a purifying agent to the church. For when suffering comes in for following Jesus, those that don't really know him and hold him dear will be quick to jump ship. I mean, honestly, why keep doing something that's causing you pain, inconvenience, marginalization? Why keep doing something that costs you unless you really hold it to be real and near and dear? So Peter says, don't be surprised. Furthermore, know that there's an act of grace in this. It's an act of grace. It's going to help the church corporate know who really belongs to the Lord. And then secondly, it's an act of grace to us individually because there's a purification for us that are uh, redeemed by the grace and mercy of God only because of His works, not because of any good of our own, that we still need some sin Right, some of this darkness, some of this evil to be purified out of us so that we grow in holiness and look more and more like Jesus. Now, just to be honest with you, when I don't know how to say something, I find someone else that says it better than me and then just quote them. Okay, that's what I'm going to do for the second point. I want you to hear me. It's a lengthy quote, okay, which I rarely do this, but stick with me this morning. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it didn't help bring great clarity to the point we're trying to make in this individual act of God's grace to our personal purification that suffering brings. Hear this. It's a quote from um, Tim Keller. Gold, so okay, keep in mind verses 1, 6 through 7, where he talks about the, the fiery ordeal that helps purify us just like gold is purified, and that Peter's echoing that point here in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. So for that frame in the context, hear this. Gold is a precious metal. And if you put it through fire, it may soften or melt, but it will not kindle and go to ashes. However, gold can be filled with impurities that indeed can be destroyed. If put through the fire, they burn off or rise to the surface to be skimmed off by the goldsmith. In a sense, the fire tries to destroy the metal put in the fire, but only succeeds in making it more pure and beautiful. Now Peter likens Christians with saving faith in Jesus Christ to gold filled with impurities. Mixed in with our faith in God are all sorts of competing commitments to comfort, power, pride, pleasure, and self. Our faith is largely abstract and intellectual and not very heartfelt. We may believe cognitively that we're sinners saved by God's grace, but our hearts actually function on the premise we're doing well because we're more decent or open-minded or hardworking or loving or more sophisticated than others. Yet we may have many blemishes in our character, we're too fragile under criticism. We're too harsh in giving criticism. We're bad listeners. We're not generous. 
to people we think foolish, we're too impulsive, too timid, too cowardly, too controlling, we're too unreliable. But we're largely blind to these things, even though they darken our own lives and harm other people. Then suffering comes along. So part of this purification process is when we suffer for the sake of Jesus and we keep going. We fellowship with Christ in a way we have not fellowshiped with Christ yet. And in the depth of that fellowship of walking with Him, while walking with Him is costing us things that were knitted to Him in an intimacy that we had not yet found. And it's being knitted into that intimacy that sin that we had not yet seen becomes illuminated. And when that sin becomes illuminated, and hear me, we keep going, the Spirit begins to clean it and get it out of our life. And so what's left at the end of that trial is, sure, maybe we were melted down a little bit. It hurt, and it was hard. But what Peter says, what's left is gold that shines even brighter. See, Jesus not only took suffering upon himself, he took it upon himself, and then hear me on this, he dignified it. But not only did he dignify it, he made it normative for his followers, but not only did he make it normative for his followers, he made it consuming in this great hope. Right now, hopeless suffering is completely despairing. That's not what Peter says we have here. He says, suffering like Jesus kindles us in intimacy with Jesus, holding out the great hope of Jesus. And that's what he says here. Keep going in our passage. Look what he says. Uh, Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you suffer in Christ's uh, suffering. He says, the reason you take joy is not because you're hurting, but you take joy because there's a nearness to Jesus that's happening, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, suffering for the case of Christ is not aimless and it's not hopeless. It's consummated at the end of our lives in this unbelievable glory. And it's the glory of finally and fully seeing Jesus. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, the beauty of things then will only be enhanced by everything now having been broken. See, when following Jesus costs us things and we keep going, When in real-time experience, we cling to Him when everything else is falling apart and we just keep going. What Peter's saying, when we see Him, when we're face-to-face, when we live with Him, the glory and splendor of that is going to be all the more sweeter and bright and beautiful for it having cost us something along the way. So Peter says, don't be surprised. It's actually a gift of grace. It helps illuminate who is really a Christ follower and who isn't. And it is in the setting of suffering for following Jesus that there are sins that we're not aware of that are illuminated, that can be healed and cleaned out of our life so that the gold of our faith shines more brightly. Let's keep going. We're almost done. He then goes on to say in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. So he draws a distinction. Hey, like it's not glorious and it doesn't bring you closer to Jesus when you suffer for doing wrong things. Okay, that's not suffering. 
Suffering is when we're trying to follow Jesus and things come into our life. Suffering isn't doing wrong things and suffering coming to our lives. That's verse 15. But look at 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. Well, why? Why do we give God glory when we're tasting things that hurt? Here's his explanation. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, how many of us have that one painted and hanging on our wall? Yeah, didn't think so. It's an interesting explanation, isn't it? That Peter's saying, glorify God that you're tasting this. Why? Because what Peter believes is that there's this great, cosmic, human, historical thing going on. And that if we're tasting this, it means we're following Jesus, which means what Jesus told us is true. And if that's true, then here's what else is true. All of these sufferings and afflictions are leading towards this moment when Christ returns and we see and behold him in all of his glory. That Peter takes a historical approach to saying, if this is happening to you, rejoice, because it only means that the coming of Christ is all the more near. That's a big deal for him. To live life in the present with a firm fixture on the future is a big deal, not just for Peter, but for Paul, all the apostles. That the future promises of God shape and frame our real-time reality. So he says, praise God it's happening because it's confirming to you that what God promises you in the end is going to come true. So he says, don't be ashamed. And shame here is associated with feeling like you've done something wrong. Look, and I do this all the time. Right, that, that, that if somebody were to make fun of you for being a Christian or you feel bad just for being a Christian, the first thing I do is I'll analyze everything that I said. Shoot, if I wouldn't have said this or I said this differently. I said, and sometimes the reality is just because I'm a Christian, they don't, they don't want to like me. That's just the truth. So Peter's saying it's not always going to be beneficial to try to pick apart everything that you said. That's like you've done something wrong. He says, no. There's some suffering that will come just because you know the Lord, and then he says it's time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if you want to make a note in your margin, uh, it's possible that Peter has Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3 uh, in view here. That God comes and cleanses the temple and he starts with the leadership, which would fit the context here because the next section of the book he's going to address church leadership. Peter says, hey, God's moving. He wants to purify his church. He wants to purify his followers. And then Peter makes a point, and if it's painful for us now, imagine how much so for those that reject the gospel of God. And so Peter's solution, which seems so counterintuitive, Peter's solution and response to suffering that comes simply because you're a Christian is to be more Christian. That's his solution. His solution isn't do things to get out of it, do things to make it stop, try to make normal life continue as quickly as possible. What he says in verse 19 is, if this is happening to you, keep doing the very thing that's causing it to happen to you. And that's living a life of uprightness and holiness, bent on being conformed to the image of God. And Peter says, that's how we keep making our way in a world where we're strangers and aliens, citizens of another kingdom, urbanites of another city. Now, if you're here this morning, 
and you don't follow Jesus, and you know that, or you acknowledge it, you got friends here or relationships here, and you're here, and we love that you're here. This passage is, 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 is maybe even more difficult for you to hear because it talks about judgment coming for people that don't follow the Lord. It talks about judgment for people that do follow the Lord. It talks about judgment for people that don't follow the Lord. Okay, I'm not going to gloss over that elephant in the room. So what Scripture does say about that, it says that God in His holiness and His righteousness demands our perfect holiness and our perfect righteousness. And if that is never true of us, we actually can't have a relationship with Him. And that relationship with God does lead to salvation. It does lead to eternal life. It does lead to no longer having to fear wrath and condemnation and and the penalty for sin. So we're left saying, well, man, I'm not perfectly righteous. And if that's the qualification, what in the world do I do? And this is the blessed hope and good news of the gospel is since God's perfectly holy, it puts us all in the same boat, imperfectly un, or perfectly unholy. Which means the blood of Christ has to cover all of us equally. Right, so the blessed hope this morning, if you're not following Christ, is there's this free love grace of God towards you, free to you because it costs God dearly. It cost him his son. And more than anything, I would love for you to embrace the reality of God's mercy, grace, and love. Like he is not up in heaven desiring to punish you and come down on you and drop their hammer. He's in heaven desiring for you to know him, and he has paved the way for you to know him simply by repentance and faith. He's not waiting back for you to get your junk cleaned up so that you're worthy of him. He's actively pursuing your heart saying, I just want you to know me and how much I love you. So what we're about to do as a church, and here at Midtown this is open to any Christ followers, this communion is an acknowledgement of that. It's coming to the table and taking the cup and taking the bread and acknowledging this. Christ had to be broken for me because of me. And when he was broken for me, it means that I don't have to be broken for me. So his body was beaten, his blood was spilled, so that he could absorb the wrath that, that let's be honest, it was rightfully ours. He absorbed it, he took it, he paid the penalty. God raised him from the dead so that we never have to go through that and we can walk in newness of life. So when we come to the table, we celebrate the death of Jesus and the blessed hope of his resurrection. The way we take it here is if you could come down the middle at your own pace and go back down the sides, that will make it logistically um, easier for us. Let me pray for us, pray for communion, and then the table will be open. Father, thank you for your... Uh, The fact that week by week, we do remember your body broken for us, your blood spilled for us, and that should produce a humility in us. That brings this continual reminder that I don't have it all together. I didn't have it all together. I was in desperate, desperate need of salvation. And I'm in desperate, desperate need of your daily sustaining grace. And when we take the cup and the bread, we acknowledge we're not better than anybody else. In fact, it's, it's a conscious acknowledgement that we're really, we were really bad and prideful 
and arrogant and conceited and addicted to sex and power and greed and gossip and lying and hateful thoughts. And were it not for you cleansing us by the blood of Christ, we would still be stuck in this cycle of enslavement to sin and hopeless despair. And so, God, though it's a scary prayer, we know even historically your church has flourished when suffering was heightened. And so, may following you cost us something, Jesus. May it cost us that we would know we are yours, that the gold of our faith would shine more brightly, that suffering for your sake would only enhance the anticipation of of the glorious uniting of us with you at the end of all things. It's in Christ's wonderful name I pray. Amen.